All right, welcome back to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you in the wee hours of February 9th from my apartment on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Still feeling that sense of um, relief uh, since the inauguration of President Joe Biden, feeling like I have to pinch myself to, you know, when I wake up in the morning to remind myself that, uh, that you know, I'm not dreaming and that re- Trump really is out of the White House. <laughs> but uh, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we're out of the woods by any means. And uh, the world, general world situation continues to be very desperate. Um, one very ominous development since uh, Biden took office is uh, just in the, uh, the days afterwards, China sent warplanes into the Taiwan Strait and entered Taiwan's so-called air defense identification zone, the midline that divides the strait, prompting Taiwan to put its defense missile system on alert. This was shortly followed up by a uh, statement from the Chinese Defense Ministry that any move toward independence on the part of Taiwan would, quote-unquote, mean war, end quote. Not very helpful. And uh, just last week, February 5th, Biden responded by sending U.S. warships into the Taiwan Strait for the first time under his presidency. So this is all quite ominous. I would like to believe that this is all just bluster on the part of Xi Jinping, and that he's just really kind of testing the waters, if if you will, and that he doesn't actually have any plans to... <clears throat> I feel like I should bite my tongue. Doesn't have any plans to invade Taiwan. Uh, if I had to guess, I would say that in the uh, strategic thinking of um, the military planners of the People's Republic of China, that contingency is still several years away. But uh, it's certainly much more of a threat now than it was, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago. That's for sure. And if it were to actually happen, it would certainly put anti-war forces in the West in a real serious pickle, in addition to having really grave implications for world peace. And even short of she attempting to do something as ambitious as that, even the the bluster and the saber-rattling is dangerous, because events have a tendency of taking on a life of their own. Notoriously, nobody wanted war in 1914 either. So a new crisis over the Taiwan Strait is definitely a contingency which we progressives in the West should be uh, weighing and considering so that it doesn't uh, take us unawares several years, months, or again, I feel I should bite my tongue, weeks down the line. And you would think that, you know, a single standard anti-imperialist and pro Taiwanese independence position would be possible. But as I always say, a global divide and conquer scam is the essence of the international state system. And in order to illustrate this reality, I'm going to be drawing a parallel on this podcast 
between the situations of Taiwan and Puerto Rico. And it's interesting. Here in Lower Manhattan, when there isn't a pandemic going on, the last Sunday in May is always a really, really great day for me. One I always really enjoy because there's two simultaneous um, street festivals going on. And I uh, try to, you know, take in both of them on my bicycle. For the past several years, I've done this. One is the Passport to Taiwan Festival up in Union Square. With lots of really great food and great music and a New York City immigrant community proudly displaying their culture in all of its um, authenticity. And then I bike down to um, Avenue C, where that same day, the Loisida Festival is going on. Loisida, if you don't know, is the uh, Latinoization of Lower East Side, which is what the, uh, when the Puerto Ricans started arriving in the neighborhood in the 1950s, 1960s, they started calling it Loisida. And Avenue C was, and to an extent still is, although less so now due to gentrification, but Avenue C was the main drag of the Puerto Rican community on the Lower East Side. And it has, in fact, been renamed Loisida Avenue. And uh, that same last Sunday in May, when there isn't the pandemic going on, there's the Loisida Festival on Avenue C with, again, lots of really great music and great food and and a New York City immigrant community with its culture still very, very much intact and vibrant and proud, kicking it real. And it occurs to me how much Taiwan and Puerto Rico have in common. Each is an island nation in the so-called backyard of a great imperial power struggling for its independence. Taiwan, de facto independent and with a movement to make it official. Puerto Rico, a de facto colony, officially an unincorporated territory of the United States with a movement for independence. And Taiwan is being particularly threatened at this moment by the imperial power that covets it, and Puerto Rico being particularly fucked over at this moment by the imperial power that controls it. So you would think that the notion of Taiwan-Puerto Rico solidarity would be a natural. Uh, yet there are certain very obvious political obstacles. And to discuss these political obstacles tonight, I'm going to be uh, briefly discussing a couple of books, each written by a uh, partisan of independence for these two respective countries, Taiwan and Puerto Rico. Before I get to the books, I should just very briefly point out, you know, the ob having drawn this analogy, I should point out the obvious differences. Taiwan is much larger than Puerto Rico, both in terms of area and population, and is in much better economic shape. And certainly, the author of the book about Puerto Rico, which I'm going to discuss, would contend, <laughs> although he doesn't happen to mention Taiwan at all, which itself is telling, because his book is very much uh, drawing parallels to other independent struggles around the world. But he would contend that the fact that uh, Taiwan is in better economic shape 
is a function of its de facto independence. And the desperate economic situation in Puerto Rico now is a function of its de facto colonial status. Puerto Rico still has not really recovered from Hurricane Maria in 2017. And disgracefully, something like $5 billion in disaster recovery aid for Puerto Rico, which had been approved by Congress, had been held up by the Trump White House through various bureaucratic artifices, too tiresome to get into. And Biden, to his credit, has just uh, launched an effort to finally get that to get that aid unfrozen and get it heading down to the island of Puerto Rico. Long overdue. All right, let me talk about the, uh, the first of the two books, which I'm going to be discussing. Taiwan's 400-Year History, The Origins and Continuing Development of the Taiwanese Society and People by Su Beng who was a uh, revered grandfather figure for the independence movement in Taiwan, who died in uh, September 2019 at the age of 100, after having lived a really amazing life. And I'm just going to, you know, do a little bragging here. I actually got this, uh, my copy of um, his book, Taiwan's 400-Year History, directly from his hands. It's a signed copy. And uh, here I've got to do a, a shout out to uh, my good friend, Victoria Linchang, who um, about 10 years ago invited me to a, um, an event, I believe it was at New York University here in Lower Manhattan, where um, Sue Beng was speaking. And I got a, a signed copy of his book. Really honored to have met him. Felt like, uh, you know, I really interacted with a piece of history here. Uh, I'm just going to uh, briefly read from the uh, brief obituary that I wrote upon his death in September 2019. Lifelong Taiwanese independence activist Su Beng died in Taipei September 20th, just a few weeks away from his 101st birthday. A resistance fighter against the Japanese during World War II, he subsequently became an underground militant who plotted against the dictatorship of Chiang Kai-shek after being forced into exile in Tokyo. He wrote his history of Taiwan, an openly partisan work with an anti-imperialist perspective, and became a vocal advocate for democracy in his island home and its formal independence from China. He returned to Taiwan with the democratic transition of the 1990s, where he continued to agitate for independence, eventually becoming a respected advisor to current president Tsai Ing-wen. With a birth name of Shi Chaui, Su was born in Taipei when Taiwan was still a colony of the Japanese Empire. In 1918, drawn to Marxism as a student at Tokyo's Waseda University in the late 1930s, he developed a strong anti-colonial sentiment. After graduating in 1942, he went to the Yangtze Delta region of Japanese-occupied China and took a position with the puppet government of Wang Jingwei to serve as an undercover agent, passing intelligence to the communist insurgents. He later joined the insurgents and fought alongside them, first against the Japanese and then against the Kuomintang, the forces of Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government. 
which had been in an uneasy alliance with the communists during World War II. After the defeat of the Japanese in 1945, he headed to China's communist-controlled north, initially to join in building a new society there. But witnessing arbitrary executions and other abuses by the communists led him to become disillusioned and return to Taiwan. After the Kuomintang retreated to Taiwan and established their dictatorship there at the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949, Su again found himself in resistance. In 1950, he established the underground Taiwan Independence Armed Corps, which plotted the assassination of Chiang Kai-shek. In 1952, to avoid arrest, Su stowed away on a ship to Japan, where he was briefly imprisoned, but ultimately granted political asylum. He established a noodle shop in Tokyo and settled down to write his book, Taiwan's 400-Year History, which was first published in Japanese and later in Mandarin and English. He rejected both the Kuomintang and Communist Party position that Taiwan is a part of China, viewing Chinese rule over the island as another colonialism, like that of the Japanese, Spanish, and Dutch. In 1967, he renounced armed struggle and formed the Taiwan Independent Association, which organized among the island's exiled diaspora. In 1993, with Taiwan's democratic opening, he finally returned to Taipei. There, he launched the Taiwan Independence Action Motorcade, which still rolls through the streets with loudspeakers, banners, and gongs advocating independence for Taiwan. He was revered as a grandfather figure for the island's resurgent independence movement. For the past few years, Su served as a senior advisor to President Tsai Ing-wen, who attended his 100th birthday celebration in November 2017. That's uh, 100th birthday by the traditional Asian method of calculating age, which includes time spent in the womb. Until the end, he pressed for President Tsai's Democratic Progressive Party to remain true to its founding pro-independent stance. Taiwan is bound to prevail, Su is reported to have said in his final words. Okay, and uh, I think that there have been later editions of the book. The edition that I have is uh, copyright 1986, when Taiwan was still a dictatorship, and still under martial law. And he basically makes the uh, the case that Taiwan has basically been, you know, batted around and passed from one imperial power to another and has been denied self-determination. The indigenous people of Taiwan are actually not related to the Chinese. They're related to the Polynesians, and uh, they are still around, largely marginalized, as indigenous peoples are around the world, and mostly in uh, fairly remote communities in the mountains, and they are among the most intransigent voices against Chinese designs on the island. Starting around four or five hundred years ago, there was uh, colonization from China across the strait, mostly uh, Fujianese peasant colonists, but they never really established a, um, an effective government on the island. Then the Europeans arrived. The Spanish and the Portuguese both did some poking around, but it was really the Dutch who established a colony on the island. And the episode in 1660, 
through which Taiwan was uh, actually incorporated into China, came under Chinese rule, has an amazing parallel to what would happen 400 years later in the 20th century. There was a dynasty change in China. The Ming dynasty fell, and the Qing or Manchu dynasty succeeded it. And there was a Ming nobleman, aristocrat, by the name of uh, Zheng Chenggang, known to the West as Koxinga, who fled across the strait to Taiwan with his followers, kicked out the Dutch, and established his rule over the island. It lasted about a generation. And then the Qing government in Beijing said, no, we can't have this, we can't have... uh, you know, Taiwan remaining under the rule of, uh, you know, the old dynasty and have, you know, a remnant government of the old dynasty still surviving and claiming some, you know, dynastic legitimacy. No, we can't have this. So uh, they invaded Taiwan and uh, took the island over and incorporated it into the Chinese empire. (laughs) Where it remained until the... uh, 1894 Sino-Japanese War. And as a part of the settlement of that, China was compelled to cede Taiwan to Japanese rule. And uh, interestingly, uh, there was a period of just a few months in 1895 when Chinese rule in Taiwan had collapsed, but before the, uh, the Japanese had invaded, when an independent republic was proclaimed the Republic of Formosa, using the old Portuguese name for the island. But it was shortly usurped by the Japanese and um, subsequent independence activities on the island, as well as an indigenous uprising in 1930, were put down very brutally by the Japanese. During the Second World War, Taiwan was bombed by the United States because it was in Japanese hands, despite the fact that the, the population was suffering under Japanese occupation themselves. But in 1945, of course, it was ceded back to China. And then, of course, in 1949, what happens? Well, once again, there was a <coughs> dynasty change, so to speak, in China. And the Republic of China government was, um, was ousted by the communists. And the leader of the ROC, Republic of China, Chiang Kai-shek, fled across the Taiwan Strait to Taiwan and established an exile government there. And this was the beginning of the, you know, the bizarre fiction of, uh, you know, the, the, the ROC government in Taiwan claiming to actually be the legitimate government of China and actually claiming to uh, have sovereignty over all of mainland China. And this absurd reality came into uh into existence where, uh, you know, governments around the world could recognize either the People's Republic of China in Beijing, government in Beijing, or recognize the Republic of China government in Taipei, but they couldn't recognize both because neither side would have that. Now, today, maybe that's changing on the part of the Taiwanese side, definitely not on the part of the Chinese side. And Republic of China rule over Taiwan was maintained through massacre and repression. Most notoriously, there was the so-called 228 incident, February 28, 1947, 
where an uprising that began with police harassment of a street vendor in Taipei was put down very, very brutally, with thousands killed over the following days. And this was really the establishment of what was known as the White Terror in Taiwan, where a state of emergency was declared, which lasted into the 1980s. And the dictatorship of Chiang Kai-shek was uh, consolidated. He died in 1975. Then his son ruled for a while until he died in 1988, which uh, really uh, precipitated the pro-democracy movement and the democratic transition, which really is interesting. It was happening, the same thing was happening in mainland China at the same time with um, the Tiananmen Square movement in 1989. But that, of course, was um, uh, aborted with the massacre of June 4th. Whereas in Taiwan, there actually was a successful democratic transition in the 1990s. It became a multi-party democracy. Martial law ended. Actually, martial law was formally suspended in 1987, the year before Chiang Ching Kuo died, the younger Chiang. So really, the democratic transition was already underway, even before his death. And interestingly, what's happened since then, you know, this is what people really don't quite get. And, you know, when I say people, <laughs> I'm talking about uh, <clears throat> people who are not Taiwanese, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> um, <clears throat> including like a lot of people on the left really don't understand, you know, they're kind of in this Cold War time warp. And they think that, you know, um, opposing Chinese designs on Taiwan means that, you know, you support the Republic of China and you're nostalgic for Chiang Kai-shek, and it means exactly the opposite, because uh, what's happened since then, very interestingly, is that the the Kuomintang, which was, you know, the the ruling party of the Chiang Kai-shek dictatorship and the Republic of China, and the uh, Chinese Communist Party, which rules mainland China, they actually fundamentally agree on a so-called One China policy. And especially as China over the past generation has, you know, undergone a thorough capitalist conversion, uh, you know, it's the Kuomintang, which has actually been seeking closer integration with China. Whereas the Democratic Progressive Party, Tsai Ing-wen's party, which is in power now, which was the opposition to the Kuomintang, uh, its leanings, at least, are for independence. And the last big activist upsurge in Taiwan was the um, so-called Sunflower Movement of 2014, a protest movement which was launched in response to the then-ruling Kuomintang government uh, attempting to uh, enter into a free trade agreement with the People's Republic of China. So it isn't the Kuomintang which, uh, you know, has now got this um, intransigent anti-Beijing position. On the contrary, that's the party which has sort of been cozying up to Beijing over the past generation. All right, so uh, that, in a nutshell, <laughs> is uh, the history laid out in um, Su Bing's book, Taiwan's 400-Year History. I'm going to just do a little bit of reading from the very end to kind of exemplify the, um, the point which I'm trying to make about the whole um, global divide and conquer scam, which is the essence of the state system and how it's playing itself out vis-a-vis the uh, case studies of Taiwan and Puerto Rico. 
All right, so I'm just going to read from the uh, the final page of the book where he's kind of summing up his thoughts. And uh, again, this is the 1986 edition of the book, written, in fact, the year before, or published, the year before martial law ended on the island. So uh, still very much written from that perspective before the um, democratic transition. But even at that time, even Su Beng, who was, uh, you know, started out as a communist and a Marxist and was forthrightly anti-imperialist and opposed U.S. support for Chiang's dictatorship, was still sort of looking to the United States for protection against China. He wrote, It is crucial that the people of Taiwan be able to exercise their right to self-determination as guaranteed in the Charter of the United Nations. This could come about under United Nations plebiscite, as has occurred elsewhere. If the people on Taiwan can unify in their own desire for an independent Taiwan, free from Chinese domination, whether nationalist or communist, the nationalist meaning the Kuomintang, this will help convince the People's Republic of China that peaceful coexistence with Taiwan is far better than a costly effort at conquest. So the people of Taiwan must continue to advocate and pursue national unity, human rights, democracy, and self-determination. This is the way to save Taiwan. This task is for the people of Taiwan themselves to accomplish. The world community can help them by supporting democratization and urging the People's Republic of China to obey international law and allow the people of Taiwan to exercise their right to self-determination. The governments of the United States and Japan should finally take it upon themselves to aid and defend all the people on Taiwan, and not just the privileged Kuomintang elite. Sales of arms of a defensive nature will remain vital for Taiwan's security, but these arms must not include instruments of repression and the sales must be tied to strict conditions relating to human rights and democratization. All right, and it has to be said that, uh, you know, there's something of a contradiction here. Now, there are, uh, you know, some armaments which are strictly, uh, you know, for internal repression, like tear gas canisters. And there are some armaments which are, you know, strictly for territorial self-defense, such as anti-aircraft missiles. But, um, you know, certainly machine guns are applicable to either purpose. So, something of a contradiction. And uh, the greater contradiction, which I am sure that Su Bang was absolutely aware of, is that uh, the United States, for its own imperial purposes, while defending Taiwan against the designs of an imperial rival, China, is itself an imperial oppressor in many other parts of the world. Which brings us to Puerto Rico. And the next book which I'm going to discuss, which came out uh, just about 10 years ago. It was also published in Spanish, but I read it in English. Decolonization Models for America's Last Colony, Puerto Rico, by Angel Collado Schwartz, who is the founder and uh, chairman of a... Uh, 
think tank on the island of Puerto Rico called the Fundación Voz del Centro, also produces a radio show of that name, Voz del Centro, Voice of the Center. And uh, the name is very telling because he's definitely, um, in addition to the word centro, being a reference to its uh, his, his foundation's um, academic affiliate organization, the Centro de Estudios Avanzados de Puerto Rico y el Caribe, Center for Advanced Studies of Puerto Rico and the Caribbean. He's also referring to the political center. And he forthrightly takes a pro-independence position, obviously, as is clear from the title, Decolonization Models for America's Last Colony, Puerto Rico. But, uh, you know, the pro-independence position has generally been associated with the left in Puerto Rico. He's kind of making a centrist case for Puerto Rican independence and basically arguing that Puerto Rico could most uh, effectively pursue capitalist development and integration into the world economy as an independent country and not being held back by the uh, strictures of its uh, so-called commonwealth status, where foreign ships are not even allowed to dock in Puerto Rico. Uh, Despite the book's title, America's Last Colony, Puerto Rico, there actually are other colonies of the United States, de facto colonies. They aren't actually called that, but it's what they are. Now, even apart from, I would say, the arguable cases of annexed Hawaii, and the Indian reservations, which are sort of internal colonies, uh, there isn't any ambiguity at all about some other cases which uh, are in almost identical situation to Puerto Rico, which in fact he does mention in the text of the book, U.S. Virgin Islands, Guam, American Samoa, and the Northern Marianas. But while, you know, the the sort of radical left independence leadership of the uh, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, you know, they sort of looked to uh, Cuba as an inspiration and the uh, the anti-colonial movements of Africa and Asia. Uh, there isn't a word of that <laughs> in um, Angel Collado Schwartz's book. His examples are Singapore, which achieved independence from Malaysia in 1965, after they had both achieved independence from the United Kingdom several years after. Slovenia, which won independence from Yugoslavia in 1991. Ireland, which won independence from the United Kingdom, with the exception, of course, of Northern Ireland between 1916 and 1922. Most surprisingly, Israel, which did indeed win independence from the United Kingdom in 1948. But some would argue that it's actually the Palestinians who are the more obvious analogy to the Puerto Ricans in terms of having been denied self-determination even today. And uh, finally, in the discussion of Israel, the author, Angel Collado Schwartz, does mention this. He writes in the chapter discussing discussing Israel, the Palestinians resemble Puerto Ricans because they belong to Israel but are not a part of Israel, much as Puerto Rico belongs to but is not a part of the United States. Israel does not want to incorporate those territories, meaning the occupied territories. 
as a democratic country, it would have to grant Palestinians the vote and eventually control of the country. Well, yes, that is indeed the dilemma. One thing that he fails to point out is that uh, there aren't just Palestinians in the occupied territories. There are Palestinians within Israel proper, that is to say, on the Israeli side of the Green Line as well, constitute a minority, but a sizable minority. And while they can vote, they are still being denied full civil rights. But uh, more disappointingly is that uh, he's already several pages in to the chapter discussing Israel before he gets around to, to mentioning the Palestinians and drawing the inevitable analogy between the Palestinians and the Puerto Ricans. Then New Zealand, which won independence from the United Kingdom in a very drawn-out and gradual process, not fully achieved until the 1980s. And uh, finally, Estonia and its struggle for independence from the Soviet Union in 1990. And uh, the reason that he chooses these four, these how many examples here? Singapore, Slovenia, Ireland, Israel, New Zealand, Estonia, six. The reason he chooses these six examples is because they're all success stories economically. Capitalist success stories, quite significantly. And uh, Angel Collado Schwartz also briefly goes over the history of Puerto Rico to make his case that it has been held back economically by its colonial status. And Puerto Rico as well was batted about by imperial powers denied self-determination by all of them. The original inhabitants, of course, were the Taino indigenous people. Uh, Collado Schwartz does not particularly um, emphasize it, but the uh, you know official version of history, which held that the Taino were all exterminated, is being questioned more and more, and there's kind of a, a Taino cultural renaissance going on on the island of Puerto Rico, with more and more folk on the island, particularly rural folk, consciously identifying as Taino. Then, of course, uh, you know, the Spanish arrive, Christopher Columbus, quote-unquote, discovers <clears throat> the island. It became a Spanish colonial holding. There was a Taino uprising in 1511, which was put down very brutally. The beginning of what, you know, the official histories have, until very recently, considered to be the actual extermination of the Taino people. A slave economy was established on the island, with enslaved Africans brought in to work the land. In 1868, directly inspired by the uh, rebellion that broke out in Cuba that year, there was the uh, first significant pro-independence upsurge in Puerto Rico and the declaration of a republic in what became known as the Grito de Lares. But while the, uh, <clears throat> the uprising in Cuba would last for another 10 years after that, uh, it was put down uh, very shortly and very brutally in Puerto Rico. Shortly after, in a um, sop to popular sentiment, as late as 1870, slavery was finally abolished in Puerto Rico. And then we jump forward to the Spanish-American War of 1898, when the islands came under gringo rule and was um, still denied independence and denied self-determination. And once again, U.S. colonial rule over Puerto Rico was uh, perpetuated through massacre and repression, most notoriously 
the Ponce Massacre on Palm Sunday, 1937, when police opened fire on a a pro-independence march, leaving some 20 dead, on the apparent orders of the uh, governor of the island, one Blanton Winship, appointed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and a harsh opponent of the uh, independence movement. Uh, Lesser known episode, which uh, Collado Schwartz just very briefly touches on, was the uprising of 1950, where a uh, town up in the mountains by the name of Hayuya was actually seized by um, nationalist rebels, pro-independence rebels, and was actually bombed from the air by the United States Air Force. A detail not mentioned by uh, Collado Schwartz, but which I've read about in uh, in other books that I've uh, that I've looked at on the matter. <clears throat> that 1950 uprising undertaken in response to moves to make um, Puerto Rico a commonwealth, which actually uh, became official two years later, 1952, following a uh, referendum which was rejected by the nationalists because it did not include an option for independence, but at least uh, limited self-government was established on the island. Also not really mentioned by uh, Collado Schwartz was the upsurge of independence activity in the 1970s. And, uh, you know, the whole um, FBI COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program, which was launched during that same period, late 60s, early 70s, to um, beat back uh, the Black Panthers and the American Indian Movement and the new left in the mainland of the United States was also unleashed on the Puerto Rican independence movement. Until finally we come to the uh, current impasse. And what's really, um, what's really tragic is that in this book, which was uh, written about 10 years ago, let's see, what's the copyright here? Syracuse University Press, 2012, so eight years ago. The author, Angel Collado Schwartz, you know, goes on at great length about the um, the desperate economic situation on the island, which has only gotten so much worse since then. I mean, the situation in Puerto Rico is really agonizing. Uh, again, the um, Hurricane Maria of 2017 proved to be a real turning point, and this ultimately uh, actually sort of resulted in a revolution on the island in um, August of 2019. There was regime change in Puerto Rico, so to speak, when um, <coughs> the uh, conservative pro-statehood government, Ricardo Rosario, was, uh, was ousted in a popular uprising an episode which received all too little media attention here in the mainland of the United States. And, uh, you know, here, I'm just going to uh, get back to my central point before I try to wrap things up. Again, in the uh, six examples that uh, Angel Collado Schwartz mentions, you know, Singapore, Slovenia, Ireland, Israel, New Zealand, and Estonia, I don't know. The only one which really comes close to, you know, a classic anti-colonial struggle, such as those in Africa and Asia, which inspired the pro-independence movement in the 1970s, the only one that even comes close is Ireland. And again, his basic argument is that, uh, you know, all these these other countries which achieved independence are um, able to access the global economy on equal terms, whereas Puerto Rico 
is not because it's being held back by its you know de facto colonial status. And one of his key points in making this argument is that Puerto Rico is not able to access Chinese capital. You know, China is like in the up and coming uh, world power and is particularly making you know um, economic inroads into Latin America and the Caribbean. And Puerto Rico can't get in on that investment because it's under U.S. rule. Let me do a little reading. Just as the 16th century was ruled by Spain, the 17th by Holland, the 18th by France, the 19th by Great Britain, and the 20th by the United States, the 21st century is destined to be controlled by the country with the highest population in the world, China. The strength of Chinese civilization, which is more than a thousand years old, was witnessed by the world during the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, and was seen again with the 2010 World Expo in Shanghai. Yet Puerto Rico cannot establish diplomatic or commercial relations with China, nor can it benefit from links with the country that has replaced the United States as the principal investor in Latin America and the Caribbean. Instead of creating jobs with the new investors of the 21st century, we are compelled to beg for additional U.S. federal funds, even while successful sovereign nations are strengthening their commercial relations with China, the European Union, the United States, and India. And he goes on, Venezuela, which owns the principal oil reserves outside the Middle East, is the main attraction for China, which has become the second largest importer of oil in the world. Last year, China, last year, this would have been, um, he wrote this particular essay contribution to the book. It's kind of an anthology, I should say, by the way, that uh, he's got his own essays. The author, Angel Collado Schwartz, has his own essays, but a lot of the book are also transcribed interviews with um, economists who he interviewed on his radio show, Voz del Centro. But this particular essay, which I'm reading, China and Latin America, was written in 2006. So last year, meaning 2005, China signed 19 agreements with Venezuela, where it is already operating oil wells and purchasing 120,000 barrels of oil per month. China has extended Venezuela a line of credit of $700 million for housing construction. In the last of his three visits to China, President Hugo Chavez unveiled a statue of Simon Bolivar in Beijing. Trade between Venezuela and China is worth nearly $3 billion, an increase of more than 100%. While the United States remains distracted by the Iraq War, China is penetrating and conquering Latin America and the Caribbean without firing a single shot. While the region refocuses on the emerging Asiatic power, Puerto Rico must remain on the sidelines, a mere spectator, because its current status does not allow it to sign bilateral agreements, to take advantage of trade opportunities, or even to use the most efficient and economic transportation services, as do our neighboring countries, including tiny Dominica and Grenada. And, uh, you know, I just find it interesting that uh, he uses the word conquering. <laughs> I mean, okay, you said it, Angel Collado Schwartz, not me. You used the word conquering. China is penetrating and conquering Latin America. So, um, 
my question to you, Angel Collado Schwartz, in your eagerness for your country, Puerto Rico, to access all that Chinese capital, is are you sure that you aren't going to be merely exchanging one master for another? Or at best, moving from, you know, actual de facto colonial rule under the United States to de facto neo-colonial rule under China. And in this regard, I'm just going to uh, mention a very amusing Facebook meme that was uh, recently posted by a friend of mine in South America, which read, Si los Estados Unidos quiere el petróleo de Venezuela, China y Rusia quieren las arepas? (laughs) And my response to that is, Buena pregunta. So, uh, I'm just asking, you know? Something to think about. Anyway, I just find it frustrating that Angel Collado Schwartz, in his um, decolonization models for America's last colony, Puerto Rico, doesn't mention Taiwan at all. And is sort of looking to China as the island's potential economic salvation. And that similarly, Su Beng, in his book, Taiwan's 400-Year History, <laughs> less surprising, perhaps, that he doesn't mention Puerto Rico, <laughs> but equally disappointing, not that I don't understand it, because I certainly do understand it. Maybe disappointing isn't the right word. Let me rephrase that. Equally frustrating is that even though he wrote that the edition that I read way back in 1986, when Taiwan was still a dictatorship and was still under martial law, he was looking to the United States as the island of Taiwan's military salvation against potential Chinese aggression. And, uh, you know, certainly in that period that I touched on briefly, which I think perhaps Angel Collado Schwartz would like to forget, (laughs) that period in the, uh, you know, late 60s, early 70s, when there was a, uh, an upsurge of, um, pro-independence activity in Puerto Rico, uh, kind of the same upsurge which animated, you know, the Black Panthers and the New Left and so on here in mainland United States. You know, there was that same uh, sort of flirtation with Maoism, which was very fashionable among lefty types in the West at that time. And, you know, the Black Panthers famously sold copies of Mao's Little Red Book. And that's a particular irony in the case of Puerto Rico, if we make the analogy to Taiwan. Just saying, something to think about. So, uh, you know, I really, really hope that we aren't going to be put to the test. We, the human race, and particularly, you know, the Biden administration and the anti-war forces here in the West, each with their own conflicting imperatives, are not going to be put to the test over the issue of Taiwan anytime soon. And, you know, hopefully Xi Jinping's bluster over Taiwan is just empty bluster. Because God knows with everything else that the world is dealing with right now, what it does not need is a superpower showdown over the Taiwan Strait. But if we are put to the test, or for that matter, even if we aren't, I would certainly be heartened if we could get past the divide-and-conquer stratagem of the vying superpowers, at least to the point that some 
and maybe this is already happening, and if it is, I'd love to hear from you, but that some of those who favor independence for Taiwan would view themselves as in solidarity with those who favor independence for Puerto Rico, and vice versa. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where much of what I have been ranting about tonight is um, extensively documented and hyperlinked. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.